Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey guys, today is the last episode in my series covering the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, earlier this month. I spoke with CEO and founder Matt George. He runs Merlin Labs, a company working in the autonomous flight space. Really fascinating category. I didn't know that much about it before diving in here, and it's definitely something I'd like to learn more about in the future. If there are any other topics that kind of fit into this like science and tech future is now category, definitely let me know. And speaking of letting me know, I had such a great time at the RDF this year that I'm definitely going to be back there next year. So if any companies, founders, VCs, etc., are interested in speaking with the realignment, definitely hit us up at our page. Would love to feature conversations. We'll be there for two days instead of just one this upcoming 2024 season. Hope you all enjoy the conversation and a huge thank you once again to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast and for flying us out to the event. Matt George, welcome to the realignment at RNDF. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's start here. Introduce your company, Merlin. Hey, so Merlin, the best way to think about what we're building is we're building a pilot, just not a human one. So we're taking everything that's happening in a pilot's brain, putting that into software, putting that software into a box, certifying that, and then putting that into a wide variety of both civil and military aircraft to enable those aircraft to fly autonomously. We're starting out first with sort of a crawl, walk, run approach. So we're starting out first with putting the Merlin pilot, which is what we call our system, uh, as the second required crew member aboard transport class aircraft like the C-130J and the KC-135. So one human pilot plus one non-human pilot uh, in the flight deck of the aircraft. That allows us to be able to go build trust, confidence, and certitude uh, you know, in that autonomous system, especially as we move it to larger and more complex mission sets you know, moving forward. What is the difference between what you're building and I think the conventional notion that planes already mostly fly themselves, especially once they get off of takeoff and landing? Planes do nearly fly themselves, right? So that's why... That's the point. That's, that's what you're suggesting. That's 100% the point. So unlike autonomous cars, where we're really starting at zero, right? From being able to go build up that autonomous capability, we're starting with a platform that has 50 years of operating history of essentially flying itself, right? From from takeoff to touchdown. So we're taking that, you know, sort of the next step further by adding a ton of autonomy to enable true takeoff to touchdown flight. Nobody's ever really done that before or nobody's ever certified full takeoff to touchdown flight, but then giving it some capabilities that used to be in the realm of a human pilot. So things like talking to air traffic control, making some limited decisions, and that's what allows you to go from two pilots down to one versus just an autopilot. The other way I sort of put it is you have cruise control in your car. Cruise control is very, very different from a self-driving car. Um, and it's sort of that jump, right, between the, between the two. Why do we want more autonomous planes in civilian and military functions? Because we, we should separate those. Yeah. The, the overall uh, tailwind is the same. Uh, as more and more humans start to, you know, inhabit the Earth, right, we're using the sky for progressively more missions, moving more cargo, moving more people, right? The sky is the physical connective, connective tissue, you know, over the world. And being able to connect the sky in like a new and interesting way is, is tremendously important. So for our civil customers, we simply don't have enough pilots uh, to match the demand that we have on the air network. Uh, and same for the military. The military doesn't have enough pilots to be able to go fill all of its billets. 
but also as we posture towards, you know, sort of new and complex geopolitical situations, uh, there are certain situations that we don't want pilots in the aircraft. You can imagine a world where, uh, you know, there's some sort of a conflict. We certainly don't want pilots in those refueling tankers or other aircraft. Which, which are particular. the point is particularly vulnerable. That are likely to be shot down or are likely to be initial targets. So if we can put autonomy, autonomous systems in those aircraft, um, that's really meaningful uh, for our ability to be able to go project air power. You know, when I speak with founders, CEOs, I love kind of getting to the like, take yourself back to the pitch deck from Merlin. What's your vision for autonomous flight? Like take me 10, 20 years in the future. Yeah. Our vision for autonomous flight is, is the Merlin pilot being just as capable as, as a, as a human pilot in as many different missions as possible. You can take a human pilot, teach them how to fly in one type of aircraft, and then with additional training, be able to translate that human pilot into a wide variety of other aircraft and missions without reteaching them how to be a human, uh, without, without reteaching them how to be a pilot. Um, same for us. So our objective is to is to be able to go have the Merlin pilot as the ubiquitous pilot uh, in both uncrewed use cases, things like eVTOL and, and others, as well as being uh, one of two required crew members on large transport class aircraft. I don't think that there's ever a world in which there are aircraft, passenger aircraft flying around with no pilots aboard. Uh, but we do think that there's a world where the Merlin pilot is the second required crew member on nearly every aircraft around the world. Can you explain this? You've made reference to the second required crew member a couple of times. Like, what, what, what's that situation? I mean, it's obvious you say the words out loud, but like, tell me more about that. Yeah. So like, especially on the tankers. So on any tanker-sized aircraft, and this is the same for the civilian and sort of the military side, um, large aircraft are complex enough where they do require two human pilots to be able to, uh, uh, you know, do all of the functions traditionally. You so know, not just backup. Correct, right? Oh, fascinating. Like, like, uh, so it's, it's just too much workload for one person. Um, so, you know, a really natural part of where we're working on the autonomy is taking that autonomous system and putting that autonomous system as the second crew member to enable the workload to be reduced to the point where there's only one human crew uh, needed aboard, uh, aboard the aircraft. What got you into this space? Long, long and winding story. But, it's your platform. Go but, for it. But, uh, you know, sold a previous company where we had gotten pretty involved, at least tangentially around the autonomous car space. So started to understand back in sort of the, you know, 2013, 14, 15 timeline, how hard it was going to be uh, to make cars, you know, sort of fully autonomous. So when I had the opportunity to be able to go start another company, I'd learned to fly in college. So I'd always been, you know, very, very passionate about, um, you know, sort of the space said, okay, if autonomy is going to eat the world, right, and autonomy is going to be the next big revolution in how humans use technology, where is autonomy going to take place first? It's going to take place first up in the, up, up, up in the sky because, as you said earlier, we've already been flying these aircraft, uh, you know, without, uh, with, without humans necessarily touching the controls for a large part, part of the flight uh, with autopilot. So it's a much easier environment uh, to be able to go automate, uh, and we've been, we've been pretty successful so far. Why has self-driving, despite the struggles, autonomous vehicles, why have they captured the public VC and technology's imagination in a way that I don't think autonomous flight is, given the fact that actually like the, the chasms you have to cross seem much smaller, and we as consumers and just users of planes are already pretty comfortable uh, with the autopilot that's functioning already. Everyone drives a car and very few people fly airplanes, right? So it's a, it's a problem that's relatable. Uh, you know, autonomous driving is something where, you know, hey, if, you're, if you've driven a car, 
uh, you can relate your ability to drive a car, you know, with how an autonomous car or an, how an autonomous system would need to drive a car, um, you know, whereby pilots have the very sim- very similar experience, uh, you know, when they look at you know sort of what we're what we're building. Um, but ultimately, I think the the first meaningful commercial implementation of like an autonomous vehicle is going to be an autonomous aircraft, not an autonomous car. What did you learn from? building in the autonomous vehicle space that applies to this category? Yeah, we weren't directly building any autonomous cars, you know, sort of ourselves, but we were, you know, working alongside a lot of companies that that were. And, and the big thing that we learned was how many things can go wrong, right? In a, in a highly, highly, highly unstructured environment like a city street uh, of how right you have to be in order to eventually get the safety driver totally out of the car. So what we've done is we've built a business around uh, putting an autonomy system paired with a human so that there is still a solid business case for autonomy plus human, uh, but you still have a human supervising the autonomy. We think it's going to be a long time before we trust autonomous systems to be totally human off the loop and unsupervised in safety critical functions. So keeping that human supervising and closely supervising the autonomous system was, was a huge lesson that we learned. How much of the challenge towards the co-pilot example you're describing is about developing new technology versus implementing things we already have? So taking, for example, the fact that we already mostly do autopilot and just taking that to its logical conclusion. There's a bunch of new technology that we need to develop, but at the end of the day, it's not a technology problem, unlike you know, other parts of the industry or autonomous cars or sort of other things where there's you know, big, huge technology problems to still solve. Um, the biggest problem that we face is, is actually human factors. So how can you... It's always the... When you put that, that's the, which is yeah. always basically the problem in these spaces. Right. But, but acknowledging that, you know, from day one, we think is really, really important. So how do you put an autonomous car, how do you put an autonomous pilot right next to a human? And if the human is totally checked out, right, because the autonomous system is doing all of the work, that's not great either, right? Because we're relying on the human to provide that oversight capability, uh, you know, to the, to the autonomous system. So figuring out the human factors between where autonomy and where people intersect is, uh, is a really interesting and a really hard problem that we're still solving. How would autonomous flight as a norm in certain mission sets change the design and function of planes themselves? I think drastically. For a long time, we've always thought about, hey, we're going to design a plane and then design the avionic systems, autonomy, right, that like go into that plane. Whereby, if you design an autonomous first tanker or an autonomous first mobility aircraft, I think the form factor of the aircraft looks very, very different and what you're potentially able to go do with that aircraft is very different. What if you had an aircraft that never got tired or a tanker that could stay up in the air you know, for two days by refueling off of other tankers? Um, that's really interesting. And autonomy not just changes the form factor of the aircraft – but changes the missions that those aircraft can perform. And we think that that's a huge, huge, huge unlock for the U.S. Air Force and and a bunch of other partners if we're able to go think creatively about what autonomy can mean for those missions to those end users. Talk about the civilian, because like I think, and you've you've very very eloquently described this, like like you just imagine for a second uh, a possible Pacific conflict. In any of the war games, any of the simulations, the world you're describing, this is just an obvious category on the civilian dual use side, like what are some new ways we could reconsider? For example, no one wants to be an air for two, it's straight. Um, I, I do. I do. <laughs> like, so what are some like new missions? I don't even say missions because that's not the nature. What are some new possibilities that could be unlocked? I'll give by you a this? perfect example. So right now, and you know, I'm, I'm, 
Uh, I know that sort of the viewers and the listeners can't see it, but we're sitting here looking over the beautiful hills of Southern California here at Reagan. Um, and those, those, this area has been severely impacted by fire. Uh, and one of the things that, that I think a lot of people don't realize is that we actually aren't able to fight fires with aircraft overnight uh, because it's too dangerous. So we don't put up firefighting aircraft at night. I didn't think about that, obviously, yeah. Directly attacking aircraft, uh, directly attacking fires. So what if we were able to go use autonomous systems that don't have people aboard, that we can take on more risk and be able to go attack fires and provide that that critical support? That's just one example, but like a very real and very short-term example, especially as our world continues to deal with climate change, changing ecosystems and, and, a, and a higher prevalence of fires and natural disasters. That's a very real use case where autonomy can make a meaningful difference in, the, in, in people's lives, people's properties, and sort of the overall trajectory of regions. You know, the um, American airline industry is going through a pretty tough state yeah. of different levels. Um, are there ways by which tech in this category could improve some of the problems, whether it's the delays or it's like the actual customer experience, the overall cost structure, pilot retirements, et cetera? Can you think in that category as well? There's been a bunch of examples in the, in the you know, sort of the press over the past, uh, you know, sort of three or four months about Overworked, overtired pilots, overworked, overtired air traffic controllers who are making errors, um, not necessarily by any fault of their own, but by the fact that there's not enough of them and the demand for their services is, is going through the roof. So one of the things we're most excited about is how can we use some of the, some of the technology that we're developing at Merlin to, not, to, to be able to go like directly help you know, a pilot or sort of others, even in the short term, be able to go reduce workload um, and hopefully make fewer errors. The vast majority of, of aircraft accidents and incidents are not caused by failure of the airplane. They're caused by uh, human error. Um, so even before we get into a world of single pilot operations and reduced crew operations, we think that there's a very meaningful step here where we can use sort of the technology to be able to go take some of that burden off of human pilots and, and ultimately make them safer. Something I wonder, um, and this is probably actually this is on the civilian and military side of things, interoperability, right? So like, you know, let's say you have this autonomous or this co-pilot system operating in the United, continental United States. Yeah. What happens when you cross into Canada? Like, how do air traffic controllers work? Like, how do you think about interoperability between flight systems? We've thought a lot about it. Um, so we're dual civil certifying our system between the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and the New Zealand Civil Aviation Authority, which, you know, the New Zealand folks are very closely aligned with the Europeans, um, you know, sort of standards. So luckily, you know, we have a couple set of sets of standards around the world, but as we start to go develop this stuff, being able to get buy-in from different regulators, different civil aviation authorities is tremendously important. But because we're still keeping a pilot aboard the aircraft, at least sort of in the first stages, um, that at least provides a, you know, sort of a clear and, um, you know, at least sort of a, a palatable pathway for regulators of still having a certified human pilot aboard the aircraft to be able to go monitor the systems and might be able to go monitor the autonomy. So we're obviously at the, you know, RNDF, 10 years of deterrence is the tagline for the year. Uh, why are you guys here? RNDF has been, uh, you know, a really, really interesting sort of, you know, weekend for us, at least for the past uh, two, three years. Um, it's where everybody that we know is, is around and we're able to go pull folks aside you know, compare notes and then be able to bring the right people into the conversation to actually get some results, right? Um, I think the defense industry is not lacking for good ideas. <laughs> um, I don't think the defense industry actually has an innovation problem. I think the defense in in industry has an adoption problem. 
So places like R&DF are fantastic where we can get sort of the right people uh, you know, together and then understand, hey, look, how can we take some of these ideas that we're talking about? And over the next three, six, eight months, how can we make those ideas real? And being able to go think in terms of first downs rather than Hail Mary throws from 50-yard lines is super important. And being able to go get everybody together to, to talk about that in person is tremendously important, which is why events like RNDF uh, you know, are, are vital. With that said, um, we should never gatekeep that. Right now, RNDF is expensive. Uh, you know, and there's plenty of small startups uh, that have big ideas and could solve really important problems to the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, you know, who aren't here. Um, so, you know, it's not just enough for, for, for all of us in sort of the U.S. military and others to say, hey, look, we're going to get together and talk about it. We actually have to bring our problems out and the defense industry needs to bring our problems out and say who's around to be able to go solve them. And then no matter if you're a small company or a big company, be able to go listen and be able to go implement those big solutions in a big way versus the innovation theater, which, which I think needs to stop. In the, in the DOD. I, I know this is on your website somewhere, no doubt, and this is a research failure, but um, why Merlin? Merlin has a very deep, deep, deep aerospace history and knowledge. Merlin is clearly a hawk. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, Rolls-Royce and, and, and others adopted the name Merlin to be able to go put on the engine uh, that was in the uh, Spitfire and the P-51 that, you know, essentially single-handedly beat the Nazis, uh, you know, from the air over the, the, the Battle of Britain and, and uh, you know, throughout other theaters in the war. So the, the Merlin name has a really important pedigree, you know, to, to me. My dad was, my dad is British, born sort of the, the tail end of, of, of World War II. And being able to sort of think about, you know, what that engine did it wasn't the airplane, it wasn't the people, but it was what powered those airplanes and powered those people is really important for us. You know, Merlin is powering the next generation of aviation and powering the next generation of being able to go project air power to ensure that what we've counted on for the last 60 years continues for the next 60 years. I guess the real question here is, Given what you're describing, you're, you're a pilot yourself, like what is, because this is always like the subject of any AI-centric conversation. Actually, would you even categorize this as AI? It's a great, right? Because it's, it's a, that's a you that's, could glom yeah. yourself onto for a couple of funding rounds, I'm sure. That's a great question. I, you know, I generally don't love the term AI, you know, I know, and, and, you know, we definitely use, of course, algorithms and some algorithms that are machine learned that are non-deterministic uh, to be able to go solve, you know, sort of some of these some of these broader problems. But at the end of the day, like one of the big things that we're really focused on is how do we take non-deterministic machine learned algorithms, large language models, and how do we encapsulate them into uh, high assurance non-deterministic algorithms that we've relied to safely deliver aircraft for the past 50 years. So combining sort of the best of what's kept aircraft safe and then adopting large language models, non-deterministic algorithms, you know, commonly called AI, uh, is really important and is a really important part of, you know, sort of what we're doing and, and how we're moving forward. You know, I'm really interested in your point around, like, I'm not just saying this, like, uh, unhelpfully, like, access, startups, are in the, not being in the conversation, not being in the conversation. What are just some general, because it's so cool that we get to be at a space like this, like, what are some other areas of exploration that you've encountered and you're interested in in general? I think if the Air Force, uh, the Air Force has a couple really critical areas that they're very far behind, and the Department of Defense has a couple areas that they're very, very far behind. Shocker. You know, it's sort of on, <laughs> you, you, You've on, changed on, the game with that statement. On China. And, and, but, but the Air Force is aware of that, right? Like, they're not, they're not, 
they're not, uh, you know, sort of unaware. But there's areas like autonomy where, you know, we have a very clear path to, hey, here's how we're going to onboard in C-130, KC-135 and sort of other aircraft. They've got to continue that momentum. But other areas like hypersonics, um, there's plenty of companies out there that are doing really great work, Hermius and, and AJ Piplica and, and sort of the team over there. And if the Air Force can't figure out how to give those technologies sort of a warm hug and make sure that they accelerate at whatever speed they're willing to be able to go move, then we've really failed as sort of a, a, a nation. So, so those are like really critical areas where I think the Air Force has the opportunity, both in like autonomy and hypersonics, that if they want, can really dramatically accelerate and be able to go catch up with, 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 with China in particular. Um, but, you know, t- time will tell. But there's a lot of really great folks at the Air Force who are thinking pretty hard about it. I guess, uh, so nearing the end here, New Zealand. Lots of, new, lots of uh, startup, you know, presence in these, like, deep focus area in New Zealand. Like, what's going on there? We're, we're really proud of our partnership in, uh, you know, sort of with, with New Zealand, you know, particularly around, um, you know, sort of the unique regulatory partnership between the New Zealand Civil Aviation Authority and the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration. Um, so, you know, in New Zealand, we can go fit the regulator in a, you know, a large conference room. Um, and, and, you know, we're able to go do things, uh, you know, in a way that is really, really thoughtful, really, really safe, but also really, really efficient. And the New Zealand folks have really prided themselves in their ability to be able to go move responsibly, but, but move swiftly towards a more innovative future. Um, so the real can-do attitude of, of New Zealand and the real can-do attitude of, of, you know, sort of a bunch of folks in New Zealand is really important and is what has attracted us and other startups, uh, you know, into that, into that ecosystem. And we think it's going to be really important for other startups in the future working on really, really hard problems. So we're, we're super proud of our partnership with New Zealand. For anyone excited for this vision, what are the remaining hurdle, big hurdles need to be surmounted? There's a bunch, right? But we're, we're consistently putting first downs, especially on the DOD side, you know, on sort of some of these, some of these larger transport aircraft. Some of the big hurdles moving forward, I think people expect me to say like, oh, it's sea and avoid or some of these complex radar problems. It's actually not. It's, it's human factors problems around how do we actually safely implement autonomy sort of alongside humans? Um, and then how do we make sure that the regulators are coming along the sort of the journey with us? People sometimes think, hey, like the regulators, their job is to be slow. That's actually not true. The regulator's job is to make sure that we're, we're doing things safely and that the sort of the public is protected. So how can we work cooperatively with the regulator to ensure that we're both moving quickly but also delivering stuff in a safe, uh, you know, sort of way out both for our customers and, and for the general public. That's really exciting. Once again, I think the first meaningful implementation of autonomy is going to be up in the air. And we're super proud of the fact that at Merlin, we're, we're, we're likely the folks that are going to make that real. Here's something I'm realizing. What is the difference between an autonomous plane and a drone? Uh, a great question, right? Um, so, you know, traditionally, at least in our experience, how, you know, sort of, you know, we, we consider the drone world like, you know, sort of small, medium-sized unmanned aircraft, whereas, you know, sort of true autonomous aircraft are, you know, sort of very, very large, uh, you know, tens of thousands of pounds, you know, sort of airplanes moving forward. Um, but being able to go pin down that terminology is important, right? And, uh, you know, we've really been a, a big proponent of, you know, sort of uncrewed versus crewed versus autonomous aircraft. And, uh, you know, the last big question, I kind of wonder here, unlocks, would autonomous planes be able to go faster? Would they be able to fundamentally, separate from, let's just say, the labor staffing issues, would they be able to fundamentally perform the job in a way 
that would actually change dynamics around flight themselves. Or especially if we're talking about human cargo, is it pretty straightforward um, given the opportunities you would get just by adding that autonomous co-pilot no, feature? No, we, we think that especially in certain missions, um, you know, autonomy meaningfully changes the way that the aircraft is able to go perform. If you take out sort of the human, you know, sort of in the loop, especially on sort of complex tactical missions um, where you can, uh, you know, sort of make decisions much more quickly. The autonomous system is able to go ingest as much information as it's able to go, you know, sort of have access to. Um, and we think it not only makes it, you know, sort of more efficient, but it changes the way that the aircraft can be deployed in very, very meaningful ways, um, you know, sort of on the tactical side. And once again, on sort of the mobility and the refueling side, being able to go do things, you know, in sort of new types of missions where not only are those missions longer, right, you know, and, and are unconstrained by a human crew, but can you, because you don't have anybody aboard those aircraft, could you put those aircraft a little bit closer to where the adversary is, a little bit closer to where our fighters need that um, because you don't have a human crew aboard that you're worried about losing? So we think autonomy is a really core capability, not just in terms of savings and efficiency, but being able to go expand mission envelopes and to be able to give new life to aircraft you know, that, that you know, have traditionally been manned for 50 or 60 years, ultimately to deliver new capabilities to the warfighter. Here's the actual last question. Um, a rejoinder to AI skepticism is a response from folks that point out that at its best, AI tools will supplement the efforts of the user. They'll help you be more efficient. They'll help you do more tasks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess since this is quite literally what you guys are doing, correct? co-piloting, what lessons, A, so like what's been the pilot response and tests? There's obviously like a selection bias there if they're testing, but what's been the pilot response, but then B, and this is how we'll close, how can that instruct us on how like, hey, we could see AI and like human autonomous or, you know, artificial interaction together as a positive some feature rather than a weakness? I think technologists have this real desire to master architect a solution for years and years and years, right, in the lab and then say, hey, world, look at this great thing that I've developed, which we think is absolutely the wrong way of developing any autonomy system or any new technology. And this is why, by the way, I wanted to call it, you keep talking about first down. So it's a very interesting like way of relating like your progress and the moves you're making. Right. So instead of, instead of sort of that aha moment, like great, look at this beautiful thing. Right. And everybody goes, eh, right. Instead, let's have those first downs, right? Let's introduce something, get pilot feedback, get pilot involvement, iterate quickly and then say, all right, you know, we, we have to go, we have to go sort of change it up a little bit, add new features, add new capabilities. And that incremental progress, which feels slow in the moment, is actually how we deliver a world-changing capability, not just, you know, for aviation, but for our warfighters and, and America's ability to be able to go project air power, which we think is like a fundamental thing that we need to change up and do to be competitive in a 21st and 22nd century world. That is a great place to end. Matt, thank you for joining great. me on hey, The Realignment. Thanks so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.